Welcome back to another episode of the Oil Ground Up Podcast with me, Tony Greer, your host. In this episode, we welcome back Rory Johnston, one of the first guests on this podcast and now our first returning guest to the Oil Ground Up Podcast. Today, we have a lot of headlines to catch up on. We're going to talk about the news that the Biden administration is tapping Venezuelan oil supply to deal with conflicts percolating in the Middle East. There was also a wave of M&A deals in the oil sector that we're going to talk about. Rory has a lot of ideas on these headlines and other comments in the market today. As usual, the Ground Up podcast is produced by the Clear Commodity Network and can always be found online at clearcommodity.net. Let's get right into the conversation with Rory. Rory Johnson, I am honored to have you back here for the second time around. You were the first guest on our inaugural Ground Up podcast and our first repeat guest. So thank you for coming back on the show today. How are you doing, Rory? Thanks so much for having me, Tony. I'm honored to be back on. Yeah, man. Really exciting. I listened. I re-listened to the conversation we had back in January, and we did a really good job of covering the markets, right? Oil was about 78 bucks, so a bit lower. Diesel was $3 a gallon, so right in line with last sale. Gasoline was like sort of 240 250 so actually a bit higher than last sale. Um, Biden had just finished up bashing the SPR, give or take, into the markets, and we had a pretty largely positive view on the market, which turned out to be really correct. And I'm proud of that. It's, it's not easy to pick the direction of the oil market ever, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, so I think we did a good job. And um, I want to come back. Obviously, I want to come back and get your thoughts on last sale. I have some pointed questions, but generally, you know, we've got to touch on things like the Middle East, the Venezuelan sanctions, M&A, things like that. So we can start wherever you want, Rory. Give me your uh, what's top of mind in the energy markets nowadays. Well, I think it's probably useful just to start as a kind of a full recap of kind of where IC fundamentals sitting today versus where they were kind of, you know, this time almost a year ago when we last spoke, um, because I do think, you know, the year has turned out to be pretty strong, honestly. I, I think some of the downsides were were legitimate last year, but I think, first of all, the demand weakness we saw over the winter um, that was I think was really weighing on demand when we last spoke. Um, that did turn out to be mostly uh, a seasonal issue that turned out to be mostly an issue of warmer winter, um, particularly in Europe that, I, that, you know, that especially saved Europe on the natural gas side. Uh, but it also affected uh, heating oil demand and kind of distillates. And I think we, we did see that in the data. And we were initially concerned that it could have been uh, further weakness in the industrial sector because that often looks the same uh, you know, in, in, in the product data. But it did turn out to be mostly seasonal. And, and what you've seen... Over the course of the years, is demand has been reasonably strong, and the importantly, oil supply deficits have reemerged in a very real way this year. Whereas when we last spoke, we we had been sitting in what had by that stage been kind of you know three, four, five months of widening surpluses in the market that I think had rightfully uh, weighed on prices. And as of a couple of months ago, those that that turned decisively back towards deficits, and I think. Um, my latest estimates for August were showing the, the you know the the largest rolling quarterly deficit in the market uh, since you know the middle of 2021, where markets were exceptionally tight. So I think that that's Rory, can I, yeah. 
can you go go into the deficits a little bit for me? Yeah. How, how are you looking at that? How is that lineup for you? You know, over time, and how has it changed recently, and what's causing that change? And just so listeners can get a little bit of an understanding of that when you say the deficit, yeah, deficits have changed. Exactly. And just for anyone else's kind of uh, curiosity, if you want to dig even deeper into this data at Commodity Context, where I publish all of my research, I recently published my uh, my global oil data deck, uh, which is data through August. And what you'll see in that that report is that. Basically, as of the beginning of this year, February, we started to see minor deficits reemerge in the market after being in a, a more or less steady surplus for the bulk of last year. Um, that deficit began to reemerge early and kind of, you know, really kind of trickled along there through the spring. Only in May and June did it really start getting tight again. And what you've seen there largely is, I mean, China has been one of the largest drivers of this demand strength. And I've written a lot this year about how Chinese demand has been shockingly, surprisingly strong, particularly given the fact that we've seen, I think, very real, broader kind of macroeconomic concerns around the Chinese economy, around the Chinese real estate market, around all of those traditional drivers that we typically associate with the Chinese economic growth story and trickling through to product demand. That's all weak. But all indications of product demand are very, very strong. I, I, I've written over the course of the year about how I was concerned that that could have been strategic stock building uh, and that we could have seen that fall back off really quickly as prices rose. But you know, when prices uh, for crude were reaching upwards of $100 a barrel at the end of September and diesel crack spreads were sitting at you know, 40 bucks a barrel, you know, no one's building strategic stocks at $140 diesel. So I think that that I think answered itself. And so far, th those data in China have remained exceptionally strong. So I think at this stage, I have to just generally begin to acknowledge that demand just is really strong in China. And that's holding a lot of the broader picture together. Um, while, you know, the other uh, other areas of, of strength that you do see are, you know, North America is pretty strong. India is pretty strong. The rest of, of uh, Asia outside of China and Japan very strong. The real center of weakness globally on the demand side is Europe. And, it, and, and that kind of remains the case uh, flat to down on the year. Uh, but, you know, generally, we don't expect a lot from Europe. It's not going to be the big driver going forward, both because of the economic situation and because of the priority they're putting on you know, vehicle electrification and kind of pressing down on that, on that uh, oil intensity. But, you know, just pulling back for a second, um, just to kind of say, firmly that the reason, and I should have said this at the outset, the reason we are in such a tight market right now is that OPEC and specifically Saudi Arabia has engineered a tight market. This isn't a, and this isn't an organic tight market. This isn't, this isn't how this would have happened if everyone was just doing their own thing year to date. What we had was very marked and notable, sizable cuts from OPEC plus broadly and Saudi Arabia specifically beginning at the end of last year, but really accelerating this spring just around that time when those deficits began to get very large. And historically, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have thought that Saudi Arabia would be withholding so much crude. And, and for, for the record, they're withholding at this stage officially 2 million barrels a day of production, 500 degree to the end of last year, 500 again uh, as part of the voluntary cuts in the spring, and then a final million barrels a day as their voluntary and unilateral cut. That's a lot of production to be holding off the market in any case, particularly when prices have been kind of bouncing around $90 to $100. That's, I think that's an abnormal level of market support from the Saudis. And I think speaks to the change 
that you've seen within the kingdom about their preference for oil prices. Historically, there's been, there's been more of a preference for you know stability in the market and and generally lower prices. It's been you know the Saudis have been relative price doves within OPEC. I think what you've seen over the past couple of years and finally manifesting now is that that disposition has been shifting to be more aggressive. Uh, kind of, you know, not hating volatility to the same degree that they once did and generally preferring a higher price. And I think if anything to take away from this year, it's that at this stage, Saudi really is kind of controlling and driving this market. And the degree to which we actually loosen up next year, if we loosen up at all, will be in large part determined by when Saudi Arabia decides to at least begin to give back that million barrel a day of unilateral cut. Yeah, so that's really interesting to me, Rory. That's something that we were, you know, we were kind of of uh, we were head of. We were kind of bashing it around in our last conversation. That battle kind of between the SPR seller and you know OPEC output cuts, et cetera, trying to keep the market afloat. I agree that these that they are withholding quite a bit of crude from the markets. Now, pivot a little bit to current events, yeah, right in the Middle East and and how that you know the Israel Palestine conflict is going to affect prices going forward, largely. Throughout the Middle East in the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a lot of risk situations, but we haven't seen a major supply disruption, really. You know, if you think about it, are we set up for the similar kind of thing or are we looking at some major supply disruption going forward due to what's going on in the Middle East right now? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's no more classic cliche risk premium in the market broadly than Middle East instability increases the price of oil. So I think generally right. that, that that's always going to be associated. And I think every single you know impulse and reflex the market has is going to reflect that for now until forever in the future. I think this crisis that we're seeing right now, at least as it currently is, uh, has progressed, doesn't have any direct impact on the oil market at all. Of, you know, obviously, both Israel and the Palestinian territories have they, they are not substantial consumers or producers. You know, potentially there's a little bit more going on with some of the regional gas dynamics, but I'm not an expert in that space. But there is something going on, on the gas side. But I think specifically the reason, the only reason this matters for oil markets in in the way that it has come up in you know every kind of analyst report since it's, since since the uh, the war began is because it ta- it directly implicates Iran and to a lesser degree Saudi Arabia. So let's start with Saudi Arabia first because I think that ties in kind of what we were just saying about the yeah. Saudi cuts. The reason Saudi Arabia comes into this discussion is because as I was saying one of the biggest qu- questions for next year is to what degree and when does does Saudi Arabia reverse and ease up on their cuts and increase production. Um wh- the first real signal that we that we had that, that could have been coming next year were leaks around these talks, these U.S. brokered talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel, where Saudi Arabia would recognize, you know, officially recognize Israel as part of a broader deal that, you know, uh, Riyadh would get a new uh, defense deal and pact with, with the United States. And as part of the, the final thing that, that Saudi Arabia was going to put into that agreement was, you know, beginning to loosen up those production cuts early next year, obviously with the, with the ever caveat that if market conditions allow and et cetera, et cetera. But I think what we've seen so far is that the, you know, uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman has been much more kind of, let's call it cravenly and opportunistically political with, with, with this kind of with these policy moves. And I think it's very much within uh, that personality to say, okay, we will increase production. You know, we we will allow slightly o- lower oil prices, but we're going to get a U.S. defense deal out of it. And I think that was that was a rational way 
to see that that production beginning to ease up and the and the Saudis letting that happen now obviously given uh the attacks from by Hamas in Israel and then Israel's counterattack one of the initially floated uh rationales for the attacks themselves was was to stymie and spoil these negotiations that obviously Iran does not like the idea of Saudi Arabia having additional uh, kind of uh, interconnectedness with the region, with the United States, more defense deals, kind of all of this stuff. None of it was none of it was Iran positive. So one of the one of the initial theories was that this was the timing was such that it was specifically meant to spoil this deal. And the reason is is that obviously Saudi Arabia it's not it's not a, a super regionally popular move to officially recognize Israel, even less so when the Israeli uh, defense forces are actively bombing Gaza. You know, th- this causes huge political issues in the Middle East. Um, and I think that right now it's, you know, at the very least, what we've seen is that there's a pause on those on those discussions. We'll see how they pr- we'll see when they pick back up and progress. I think there has been signs, again, given MBS's very kind of self-interested political style, that maybe he doesn't have the same degree of um, you know a sensitivity to the Palestinian issue that I think likely existed historically. I think net net it's less important to the negotiations today, but I do still think the timing is such that, that you know at the very least we're not going to see any big announcements and an official uh, recognition while the bombings are still going on. Um, obviously, I mean the, very fair. I think the other thing that the other direct implication here is Iran, and I think. I had mentioned that Iran could be, this could have been part of a plan from Tehran to spoil these negotiations, et cetera. The reason that Iran plays in is because it's a well-known and kind of chronic backer of not just Hamas, but broadly, you know, um, you know, anti-Israeli militant forces across the entire region. Now, the question is, will you, was this a direct assistance? Like, was, was there, you know, early, there was an early Wall Street Journal report that essentially argued that, Tehran helped in the planning and officially greenlit the, you know, the, the attacks that I think has since been walked back. And there's various, uh, you know, disputed claims around this area. But if you saw that much of direct involvement, at the very least, you could expect a tighter enforcement of sanctions against Iran by Washington. And the reason that matters year to, you know, year to date is that Iranian production has, has increased somewhere in the ballpark of 500 to 700,000 barrels a day over the past year despite there being no official change in, in U.S. sanctions policy towards Iran. This is entirely an issue of looser enforcement and just generally more positive vibes the, the White House had been putting out that kind of signaled like, okay, if you're a Chinese buyer and you were considering buying sanctioned crude, but you were kind of iffy on it, um, you know, we're not going to pursue and really heavily enforce this. And what, what happened? I think reasonably you saw increased purchases of Iranian crude from Chinese buyers. Um, that I think is at risk if you begin to see a tighter, at least even just kind of rhetorical disposition from the White House towards these sanctions. So that's where you could see a pullback in in Iranian production and exports, is it in, and potentially of upwards to you know five hundred thousand plus barrels a day uh, if you begin to see that uh, that uh, enforcement tighten. I think those are the two major factors we're watching. One's an immediate thing, sanctions enforcement. And one's a kind of a, uh, will, will the Saudis increase production next year? Very good. No, that, I really appreciate that, Roy. That's a very well-balanced approach that kind of, you know, 
puts the attention where it belongs, which is sort of outside of the oil producing nations, right? And, and understanding that we're kind of tiptoeing around them, but there really shouldn't be a direct effect from the supply of oil. And so that's important to hash out. And so while we're talking about sanctions, Rory, I got to read uh, your note on Venezuelan sanctions, uh, which are sort of being removed or eased by the Biden administration now. Can you go into a little bit of, of that? That was a little bit over my head with discussion of some of the grades, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I really enjoyed hearing about it. So I'd love for you to sort of open that can up a little bit if you can. Perfect. And thank you for mentioning the piece I published this morning on yeah. on Venezuela and, and the recent announcement last week at the time of uh, taping this, when the Biden administration announced that they were a temporarily but but sweepingly removing sanctions from the from the Venezuelan oil industry that had been uh, placed on the industry in early 2020 2019 um since that you know since those those sanctions were applied you saw a very kind of precipitous decline in Venezuelan production that has bounced back a little bit and you saw actually uh at the at the end of last year, in November of 2022, you saw a selective easing of sanctions, specifically to allow Chevron to begin exporting some crude and products from Venezuela to essentially repay itself of debts that it was owed by the by the government of Venezuela. Now you're going to see a broader kind of loosening. And now, you know, headline up front, I think this is a meaningful change in the in U.S. Venezuelan relations. I don't think it's a huge factor in the near term for the oil market. I think at the most, you're going to see probably 200 to 300,000 barrels a day, increase in production exports, uh, which just for perspective is about half the volume that we could see lost from Iranian uh, exports if U.S. sanctions were to tighten, and obviously potentially upwards of you know only a tenth of what uh, Saudi Arabia is currently holding off the market. So it's a reasonably small volume of crude. I think what's important, and, and you mentioned the grades of crude. So two things. One, uh, you know, Venezuelan production, its primary export grade is called Mary, and it is a heavy, sour crude. It's diluted bitumen, very similar to what you see Canada export, which is the Western Canadian select barrel. Um, two things. One, you're going to see increased production of that. So net net, that's going to put pressure on global um, you know, heavy value relative to sweets and uh, light, light sweet crude. And the other thing is that much of that crude had been going to China, whereas now more of it will be going back to its traditional kind of landing point and customer base, which is actually the U.S. Gulf Coast. So you're going to see not just an increase in production, but an even larger swing, potentially, you know, 400 to 500,000 barrels, potentially, uh, swinging back towards the Uf U.S. Gulf Coast, where right now you have seen very tight, light, uh, sorry, um, very tight, heavy, sour differentials in the U.S. Gulf Coast because you've seen the Saudi cuts, because you've seen Mexican production falling off, because you've, you've had sanctions on Venezuelan crude. So you have seen tight differentials at the Gulf Coast for heavy sours. I think that will likely begin to ease off, which is, I think, net-net a negative for producers and exporters like Canada, where I am, I, I am writing and, and, uh, and, and researching this market from Toronto and, and Canada. Um, so our primary export grade, I think, will get uh, hit by a, probably a couple dollars a barrel on the kind of steady state differential, uh, given that those, those production increases you know, before this, they weren't going to be agreed. I think the big question is, is this, and I, and I think the natural political discourse that emerged immediately after this is, what is the Biden administration doing? Are they just looking to, you know, every single autocrat they're currently, you know, sanctioning in order to get a little bit more crude for the market? 
Um, I think there probably is, you know, some degree of that. I think that obviously everyone knows that gas prices are political, bad for the bad for an incumbent president, et cetera. Um, I think that you could see a little bit there. But as I was saying, this is like a reasonably small amount of crude in the scheme. And I think there's more likely political blowback from doing something unproductive or kind of getting egg on your face politically with re-engaging with the Maduro, re-engaging with the Maduro government in Venezuela. You know, I think the the concessions that they got and the, and the reason they rolled back these sanctions for the record is the, the Maduro government agreed to a couple different election, you know, concessions regarding the Venezuelan election for next Venezuelan presidential election for next year. The last election was in 2018. It was widely seen as corrupt and illegitimate. It had some of the lowest voter turnout. I think it was the, the official lowest turnout in Venezuela's democratic history. You know, these were not good elections. Um, this coming election, the both the opposition and now Washington are pressing the Maduro government to do two main things. First of all, uh, they're going to have international. Just let the CIA control the entire election. That would be that would be convenient. No, yeah. uh, but I, but I, but right, you just know. go right to the chase, Rory. <laughs> but the first, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. The, the first is these international observers. Um, so bringing some kind of transparency to the process and the counting of votes, et cetera. Very basic election transparency stuff. The other factor, the other thing they've agreed to is, sorry, in addition to releasing a bunch of political prisoners and U.S. nationals held in, held in Venezuelan jails, for, uh, um, you know, what the White House would consider unjustly. Uh, but the final electoral concession being made is that, you know, again, theoretically, the Maduro government has agreed to let all candidates who want to run in these elections. Now, just this past, you know, the beginning of this week, the Venezuelan opposition held a, a primary, uh, a primary election, essentially, and one individual, a woman na- uh, last name Machado, uh, is now the official. Like this, this is the official candidate. She got ninety three percent of the vote uh, in the primary. The issue is that she's already been officially banned from running. So I think I think the question of whether or not these election concessions will mean anything at all, and I think specifically whether or not the Biden administration can treat this as a win or not will largely depend on whether or not Machado is allowed to run. And I think what you're seeing, it, it, technically right now, the, these sanctions could snap back at any point. Treasury has reserved the right to say basically, like, you know, at the first sign of you not complying, we'll slap the sanctions, sanctions back on. And the Maduro government has said that by the end of November, so this is over the next month, they'll have a tangible plan for these things being done. I think I'm inherently an optimist Let's let's see. Let let let's you know. Any progress is good. I think for the people of Venezuela, the the economic crisis in Venezuela is truly staggering. Over the past decade, Venezuela's GDP has fallen by seventy five percent. There are now almost eight million Venezuelans living outside of Venezuela as refugees and economic migrants. That's a quarter of the pre crisis population. It is a terrible, terrible situation for the people of Venezuela. Ugh. So I would say that anything that can be done, and again, these sanctions are only good if they're used as leverage for something. So now you've created a carrot and a stick. So the carrot is, yeah. this is your money you're going to get. And the stick is, we can slap these sanctions back on at any point. So I'm hopeful we could see some movement. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine the Maduro government agreeing to free and fair elections that they will likely lose. So I think... It's going to be hard to see between now over the next couple of months where this goes. But I think, you know, the inclusion of Machado is going to be, I think, the key uh, bellwether of the seriousness of these electoral concessions. 
Got it. Very interesting. Thank you for unpacking that, Rory. That is really, really clearly, clearly uh, and concisely explained. So we appreciate it. It sounds like the grades are kind of what's important there. It's not going to be a washout on the whole market. It has to do with the sanctions and the trade-offs, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a pretty deep, deep story. And sounds like something that's sort of tangential to the spot price of crude oil, and not necessarily a, a sort of direct effect. So let's talk. Let's let's uh, come back to the states here for a moment, and let's talk about. Uh, I want to just talk about what just happened in the gasoline markets. Right, we had the crack spreads, where uh, let's call it the three, two, one crack spread that we have on Bloomberg here, cruising along at around thirty five dollars at the end of September, um, which collapsed to about twenty dollars recently. Uh, twenty. $20 recently. Um, we saw weaker gasoline demand take Arbob down from Arbob gasoline from 280 to 220 um, a bit of an inventory build there. And we're watching the sort of sort of decent calendar in crude oil, which is all over the map lately. We just blew out to $12 on the wides. We just collapsed now below $7. Tell me your thoughts on um, on what is the sort of local situation? What happened to the crack spreads and the gasoline co- collapse? What was that all about, that kerfuffle that we just lived through? Yeah, so I think one thing that we're seeing right now, and, and, and you know, I think the, the reason people look at the 321 crack is because it's, I think, a broadly fair representation, a quick heuristic of U.S. refiner profitability. But I think it really, it, you know, really pays to separate them. And I usually, on my screen, I've got them separate as, as gasoline and diesel. And just to kind of put in perspective right now, the diesel crack spread, and this is versus Brent in New York Harbor, the diesel crack spread is sitting at $40 a barrel, which is more than twice its kind of pre-COVID normal, whereas gasoline is sitting at just shy of $7 a barrel for the crack spread. So huge, huge difference in these crack spreads, and I think speaks to the continued bizarreness of the refined product market. And I think one thing that's hard, I think, for, I think a lot of people got interested in oil during COVID because it got really exciting during COVID. I think one of the things that's really hard to appreciate is how refining never used to be that exciting. It was, you know, the 321 crack spread and broadly, you had occasional blowouts, uh, but these were mostly local issues. You know, this was a, a sector that had structurally kind of chronic over, over capacity. Uh, and these crack spreads kind of, you know, really sat in that kind of 10 to $20 barrel range, very rarely blowing out. Um, now we're seeing, you know, last year we saw all-time high crack spreads for gasoline and diesel at like, you know, I think at their peak near $70 a barrel at, for both at certain moments, which, you know, when crude was at 130, that means you were paying the equivalent of a you know, $200 crude at, you know, at, at the pump for, you know, filling up the car. So, you know, very intense. And I think um, what we've seen is that while gasoline has come back into balance, and you were mentioning the inventories, uh, U.S. weekly inventories went from gasoline for about 18 months or so, had traced the very, very bottom of its seasonal normal uh, kind of range for this time of the year. And over the last kind of call it seven, eight weeks, that shot right back up above the seasonal norm and is actually kind of sitting above the seasonal average right now. So that was a huge, you know, huge switch. Meanwhile, uh, ga- you know, meanwhile, diesel is still kind of tracing the very bottom of that range, and uh, crude oil is back at the bottom of its seasonal range as well. So you've got a tight crude market, tight overall liquids market, then you and you also have a tight diesel market, but then this kind of glutted gasoline market. So it is certainly weird. I think part of that is I think people are debating: is it a supply factor or is it a demand factor? In balances, it's always a bit of both. Uh, so I think you know probably yeah, ga- you know gasoline demand hasn't been tremendously hot, but it probably isn't anywhere near as weak as some of those weekly 
EIA reports had it because again, those are very, very volatile and not a great kind of, uh, not a great gauge of where we're at at the moment. Um, but at the same time, what we had seen is that U.S. refiners had been maintaining runs more aggressively than, than they normally would during the season, trying to keep up and chase those diesel crack spreads. So in the process of, of trying to monetize diesel, they were continually oversupplying relative to demand gasoline. And that's the trick. And that's the, the ultimate you know, factor in, in refined markets is that you can't just make one product. You have to refine a barrel of crude and you get a suite of products. So what we're seeing right now is you know, while it's slightly up from it from its lowest, I think at its lowest you got it like four dollars a barrel on the gasoline crack spread. Even right now, with a you know five, six, seven dollar crack, they're really effectively negative, true refining margins on gasoline. At this particular moment, gasoline is a byproduct. Um, that the the challenge, therefore, is that you need higher diesel cracks, all else equal, to get the amount of diesel you want because. Diesel is the only thing that's really driving, and diesel and to a less into a lesser volume extent, uh, jet fuel are the only things really driving refiner profitability right now. So you know, as you know, if gasoline let's let's say gasoline became even more under you know oversupplied, and let's say you got a negative ten dollar a barrel uh, crack on gasoline, this is this wouldn't likely happen. You know, that's pretty extreme. But let's say. All is equal. It means that gasoline is dragging down your margin. You need, you know, a ten dollar or twenty dollar higher diesel crack in order to keep that overall same crude barrel positive on a run rate. So that's the challenge here: is that you know these markets are still having this, you know, having a challenge uh, finding any balance. I, you know, I think at this stage it seems reasonable that we'll probably see gasoline cracks recover next driving season. But we're seeing very punctuated and acute. Um, moves between driving season where you're seeing crack spreads for gasoline at like 30 40 bucks and then as soon as the season ends you're like down to zero um that's very that's that's just tremendous volatility (laughs) yeah yeah it really is i mean this is uh i like how you sort of eloquently explained that it's tough to finesse a refinery yeah right i mean you know you're cracking the oil you're getting diesel and gasoline out and it's going out to the markets and it's sort of the you know something that we should teach to the administration that it's the market demand that sort of controls you know how those spreads wind up working out so that was a really clear explanation of what's going on with those let's touch on another topic rory um We've got some M and A and E and P, which, as we know, is a threat to democracy. But we're we're gonna uh, we're gonna get over that in a moment. We're gonna talk about you know we just saw Chevron for Hess for fifty three billion. Before that, Exxon Mobil for Pioneer, um, the largest operator in the Permian for sixty billion. Now we have the biggest producer in the largest oil field. Um, leaves four companies in the Permian. Tell me what you're thinking about the M and A going on in the sector now, and what's the outlook for it? Yeah. So my my one caveat here is that. I'm not an equity guy. I don't spend a tremendous amount of time looking at the specific stocks. So, you know, don't listen to me on like stock recommendations or don't expect that kind of stuff from me. (laughs) But I think from a macro perspective, like what's going on with this M&A, I think clearly the market is very, very uncertain. And I think, you know, the outlook is uncertain. Uh, The rates uh, environment is very high uh, and scale really brings dividends right now. I think it brings safety, it brings lower financing costs and, and a better ability to finance straight off the balance sheet. Uh, it, you know, if you're looking at a broader equity market that has generally, you know, actually been acutely diminished in terms of access uh, of investors for these companies, 
what, you know, like if you're a, if you're an investor and you're going to put your money into a company, you're going to put, you know, you know, all likelihood is you're going to put it in the most recognizable names. And so I think companies like Exxon and Chevron are going to benefit there. And I think you've seen that. I've seen others say that, that, you know, that has uh, scale comes with better multiples right now. And I think what you're going to see broadly is, you know, it's unlikely, I think, at this stage that you're going to see any major oil acquisitions from any of the European majors like you saw from the American majors. I think that's, you know, a lot of those companies are looking at greening and reducing the oil intensity of their of their jet of their broader project portfolios. And I just can't imagine them going after a company that's like Permian heavy or, you know, offshore heavy or whatever. Um, but I think what you could start to see is, you know, some of these medium players within the Permian, the ones that weren't acquired, uh, kind of looking around, you know, you know, last girl at the dance. Uh, and I think now there's this question of like, how do we get big? Well, you know, is there, are there broader possibilities of mergers between equals? Uh, and I think that is, I think the, the next thing that wouldn't shock me is if you started to see some, you know, not big, you know, me, you know, ultra caps acquire, you know, the big middles, but some of the big middles begin to merge themselves and try and begin to kind of climb that scale ladder. Um, but I do think that, yeah, I think, you know, for all the reasons I, I mentioned and, and as well as just trying to control uh, your supply chains and your inventory and acreage, I think right now scale is, comes with, you know, huge benefits. Um, and, you know, dare I say it, you know, synergies right now, particularly if you're, uh, if you're, um, uh, kind of operating, particularly, you know, I mean, with with Exxon and Permian, it was all sorry, Exxon and Pioneer it was all with the Permian. Chevron, I think, you know, really wanted access to the, you know, the Strobrook block in Guyana, where Hess was a thirty percent uh, participating partner alongside operator Exxon there, and that is, I think, by all indications, one of, if not the most exciting province for new oil exploration right now are the are the waters off Guyana, and I think, you know, that was. Certainly, I think one of the driving forces for Chevron on, on the Hess side. Yeah, that makes sense. Very interesting. So it's really about economies of scale and this higher yield market, higher rate market, and things like that. That's that's a really interesting contributing factor, Rory. I want to ask you. I want to hold your hand to the fire a little bit now, <laughs> Rory. If we, uh, oh, I have uh, first two two things. First, actually, before I hold your hand to the fire, let's talk about natural gas real quick. Okay. Um, I'm not like I'm not an expert on it. I'm much more in tune with the crude oil markets, but obviously it's it's worth paying attention to. It's picking its head up here quite a bit. Um, you know, it spent the majority of the summer or just above two bucks. We broke above the moving averages at the end of September, which were around you know nearly three bucks. Rallied to a high of three fifty. We're at about three and a quarter last. It's a very sustainable, very calculated rally for natural gas. You know, to me, I'm used to seeing it when it's going, when it's taken off. <laughs> it's usually those large magnitude jumps and gaps in the chart. Um, is this something that we should stay on top of? Does this have the potential to go to $5 or is this just a kind of flash in the uh, supply shortage pan? Or what are your thoughts on natural at three and a quarter? Yeah, so... Same as you, I'm really not a natural gas guy, but you know, just kind of watching it on the periphery, I'd, I'd agree with your assessment. Prices had gotten very, very low over the course of the spring and summer. Uh, I think those were, I think, reasonably not sustainable. But even at those prices, you have seen production continue to chug along. So I think, you know, is everything with gas, and the one reason I don't currently follow it really closely is that it's, you know, so much is going to depend on what happens this winter. Um, obviously, we could end up, you know, you could say like, yeah, gas is going to have trouble reaching five. But then you have a you know a cold snap, and all of a sudden every every forecast goes out the, out the door. So my you know I think generally from the people that know far more about gas that I do follow in the market, 
I don't, it doesn't seem like there's, you know, an immediate, you know, mooning around the corner. But I think as with all gas, there's a reason they call it the Widowmaker. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, let's get that's that's fair enough. That's fair enough comment. So let's go back to holding your hand to the fire (laughs) in the crude oil markets then Rory. So we've got uh, last sale at $83. Let's say which way would you say is the next $15. And if you don't think that it'll move $15 in either direction, so say 98 to a new high, or down to 68, which would sort of be the bottom of the range, you can tap out and say that we're not going to see that move at all in the next six months to a year. So those are your three choices. Next 15 higher, next 15 lower, or fat chance we're not going to see that much volatility in the next six months to a year. Well, you know, heaven forbid I be short crude volatility. So I'm I'm definitely going to choose one of the directional ones. And I do think at this stage, the the more likely directional option right now for me looking at the market is higher. I think that, you know, it's just because I think you could easily get $10 plus here in in pure risk, in pure geopolitical risk premium alone, on top of the fact that, I, I mean, again, I'm still modeling very, very wide deficits. I think, you know, that will continue to erode inventories um, until eventually prices go higher and we start to hit and we start to hit demand back. But at this stage, it just seems like, you know, unless Unless the Saudis, you know, in the beginning of next year, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat and increase production by a million barrels, I think that we are at this stage, you know, call it six months ago, I was saying that it looked like we're going to like the mid 90s. I think now that we've hit the mid 90s, I think it's more likely that we're going to, you know, the low hundreds here, kind of like, a, you know, upwards, you know, low triple digits. I don't think I, I doubt we'll hit 110 when you have this much you know, spare Saudi and OPEC plus capacity sitting on the sidelines. Um, I think it's a very different market we exist in. Again, an artificially tight market right now versus, you know, this time, you know, early summer in 2022, that was a tight market and everyone thought OPEC was tapped out and all this stuff was happening at once. Now I think it's a much more reasonable, but still kind of fundamentally tight market. So I, I do see the upside there as kind of the, the path of least resistance. Do you think that's diesel driven or gasoline driven at all? Or you think it's just a straight WTI tightness, Rory? Can, can we uh, dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I think at this stage, uh, given that it is largely a supply side tightness on crude, I think that crude will be the leader here. But I think within the products, I think that diesel will continue to be the one to watch. Uh, the one thing we didn't mention earlier, and it could have come up in the conversation of the Venezuelan uh, Mary and kind of heavy crude grades, is that one of the other interesting dynamics that's been playing out is that diesel yields, uh, you know, have been struggling relative to what they should, given the given the relative price disparity. And obviously, refiners have some flex between whether they want to prioritize diesel or gasoline, and, and they would typically do that a little bit based on what's going on. Presumably, right now, you'd be maximizing, absolutely maxing out diesel. But, you know, it's it's challenging to do that in large part because we have seen the overall crude slate available to the market lighten up considerably. So I was mentioning earlier that you had tighter markets for heavy sour crudes. Uh, that reflects the fact that, again, Mexico's been falling off, Venezuela's sanction, but also these OPEC plus cuts and Saudi in particular, when you ha- when they produce a huge variety of different crude grades, they're going to cut the heaviest ones first because those are typically the least valuable to the market. The challenge becomes how this all runs through a refinery that it's typically easier to you know crack open a heavier hydrocarbon to make it more flexible through your refinery than fuse lighter hydrocarbons so 
Uh, lighter barrels are much heavier in gasoline, whereas heavier barrels have all this like residual sludge in the bottom. But that sludge, that residual fuel oil, et cetera, goes through a coker. And that yields a bunch of a bunch of precursor product that allows you to make more diesel. So one of the things that you have seen here is that as the overall crude slate has become lighter, you've also seen, you know, you know, dollar for dollar, barrel for barrel, lower diesel yields throughout the system as well, which is even further exacerbating this problem. I think the one thing that would really solve both of these issues in the market, again, is if you saw Saudi begin to return its barrels, because then you'd get more heavier barrels in the market that would help address some of those diesel yield issues. And at the same time, it would loosen up the overall crude market. Got it. That's very interesting. All right, Rory, we skipped across a whole bunch of topics <laughs> today in the oil markets. I want to make sure that uh, I, did, I don't have a blind spot. If there's something that I missed that you'd like to bring up, please do it now or forever hold your peace until our next interview. Right now. <laughs> but uh, no, if it, <laughs> Yeah, if there's if there's a spot that I didn't talk about that you want to mention, please feel free. I think that's you know I'm I think everyone's head's spinning right now. I think that it's it's yeah. very hard to keep track of everything in the market right now because again, normally you yeah. could obsess for a whole cycle about Venezuela or Iran or any of these other individual pieces. Um, I think what we're seeing right now, I think the same factors will remain important that remained important kind of six months ago, which is what Saudi going to be doing with its production. Uh, where is where is Chinese demand going? Because I think still anyone that pretends to really know what's going on with Chinese demand right now, I think is fooling themselves just a little bit. Um, yeah, we're going to see where it goes. Uh, those two things alone, I think, are going to be hard to compete with, just given the size of those variables in the market. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, man, Rory, I, I I can't thank you enough for this really, really, I mean, brilliant conversation. We went over, you know, the sort of deficits in the oil market. We went over um, the manufactured tightness by OPEC. We went over the Iran, Saudi Arabia risk, the Venezuelan sanction story, diesel cracks, gasoline, M&A, the geopolitical risk premium. And I think we covered it all. Can you tell our listeners, Rory, where they can find you? Because I would imagine after this conversation, they're all going to come looking for you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rory underscore Johnson, or I guess X now. And then all of my research uh, I publish on Substack and you can find it at commoditycontext.com. Beautiful. Well, we will be uh, trafficking through your space and following <laughs> along with what you're saying. That was a really, really interesting conversation. It, it certainly cleared up a lot for me. And I can't thank you enough. We'll definitely have you back on here in six to nine months and talk about what we talked about today and get caught up on the oil markets again. Thanks so much for being here today, Rory. Thanks for having me again, Tony. Absolutely. Outstanding conversation. This episode of The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer should not be perceived as investment advice. Tony, his guests here on The Oil Ground Up, and the host company Clear Commodity Network are not responsible for any losses arising from any investment decisions based on the information presented. Please do your own research and speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.